1: Just how inbred were the Habsburgs? Hello, my friends, Takuya here, and welcome back to the History of Everything podcast YouTube channel. And the, uh, the figure that you can see behind me here is Charles II of Spain, though I'm sure that a number of you have already known that here, considering that you've seen these horrifying images in your nightmares probably every night. Of all the families that we associate with inbreeding, I mean, sorry, sorry, keeping the bloodline pure, there are a few greater examples in history than the Habsburgs, or I guess perhaps, even if we're not counting history, then maybe like the Targaryens or something from Game of Thrones. And mind you, when I say that, that is not a goal that you want to ever meet, let alone actually surpass. I mean, after all, when we were talking about this guy, King Charles II, or Carlos of Spain, he was the individual that was the last Habsburg ruler to actually rule Spain. And I'll be honest, considering everything that we're about to discuss here today, that is, that is a good thing. Yeah, yeah, d- definitely. The man that we're talking about here was incredibly ugly. And no, I already know what the comment section is going to be saying. Guys, I'm not, no, guys, I'm not saying that you you need to be pretty in order to rule a country. That no, 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 hear me out on this. What I am saying is that he was so physically and mentally deformed, he was so incredibly ugly that he should not have been able to take power in the first place, but he did, and it wasn't his fault that it happened. Rather, it was the desire of his family in order to be able to maintain and consolidate their bloodline and achieve power. Yeah, my friends, as I said, the Habsburgs is one of those families who are relatively well-known, at least in the minds of the public, and if you're going to be talking to anyone about the problems that could be associated with inbreeding, really, you need to do nothing else besides just show a picture of any. Any one of the latter members of this family and you will immediately start to see some, uh, s- some problems and where things begin to be more than just coincidence with issues that they face. Charles himself was an imbecile who at the age of 39 would prematurely die and his death is what would plunge the world at that time into the War of the Spanish Succession, one of the largest wars at that point in European history. I mean, the conflict that we're talking about here is something that would be a major turning point in history, something that would end the dreams and ambitions of the great sun king of France, Louis XIV. I mean, France's position positioned as the unchallenged power of Europe would effectively end from this conflict due to extreme fiscal and military oversights and overextension, all in the name of trying to cure the Spanish throne specifically for Louis' grandson. But today, my friends, this is not a story about war or anything like that. No, this is a story of genetics, of talking about something that historians have long assumed was severely wrong within the Habsburg line. But interestingly enough, it was only within the past couple decades that studies were actually done to show just how incredibly inbred the Habsburgs were. And it is bad. I mean, just as an example of what I'm talking about here, allow me to please present to you a section from a biography specifically about Charles II. The Habsburg king, Carlos II of Spain, was sadly degenerated with an enormous misshapen head. His Habsburg jaw stood so much out that his two rows of teeth could not meet. He was unable to chew. His tongue was so large that he was barely able to speak. His intellect was similarly disabled. His brief life consisted chiefly of a passage from prolonged infancy to premature senility. His family was anxious only to prolong his days and thought little about his education so that he could barely read or write. He had been fed by wet nurses until the age of five six and was not allowed to walk until he was almost fully grown. Even then, he was unable to walk properly because his legs would not support him and he would fall several times. His body remained that of an invalid child. The nature of his upbringing, the inadequacy of his education, the stiff etiquette of his court, his dependence upon his mother and his superstition would help to create a mentally and hypersensitive monarch. Which, oh my God, if you're talking about something as a description of a person, wow, okay. But I guess the question here at that point is how exactly did we get here? Just how inbred were the Habsburgs? Well, my friends, today let's go ahead and dive into it by talking about the origins of Charles II and the Habsburg line as we do a deep dive into the dirty little details of what exactly created this monstrosity in the first place. But first, let me go ahead and thank today's sponsor, MyHeritage. But hey my friends, do you want to find out if you have some cousin marriages in your history? You uh you you, you probably don't want that there in the first place, but it's really important that you know whether or not it's there. And that's why today's video is perfect to be sponsored by MyHeritage. For those of you who are not aware, MyHeritage is the number one family history research service. It's super fun and easy because all you have to do is plug in your own information, your parents, your grandparents, and from there, the website takes care of everything and finds all these relatives you had no idea about. And with over 19 billion records at your fingertips, you're gonna find some crazy things. Like as an example, I had no idea that I had relatives straight out of Prussia before Germany was ever a thing or that that particular relative almost immediately migrated to the United States after the American Civil War. Like, it's all fascinating. And just finding old relatives isn't the only thing you can do. I mean, check out this old family photo that I was able to find. I can first enhance it, and then I could even colorize it. It is absolutely insane what you can do with a photo that is over 100 years old put into this. I'm gonna go ahead and say this right now, but this is an extremely cool thing. Not only is this a really cool service, but simultaneously, this is possibly the greatest advertiser that I could possibly have to go on this particular video. You'll get why this is funny, right? So guys, what are you waiting for? Click my link down in the description, sign up, and by all means, make sure that you don't have any Habsburg blood in you, because otherwise, um, I- I'd advise going and getting yourself checked out. Anyway, now, in order to begin our story, this is going to start out very ironic here, in fact, because in comparison to the ugliness of what we were talking about with Charles II, our story today begins with Philip the Fair. Fair, in this case, meaning like handsome or beautiful, which Philip got that name specifically because of his striking eyes and simultaneously his luscious, beautiful hair, which uh, paintings back in the day appear to have really not done much justice, I think. I'm just saying. And Philip is going to enter into the story at the end of the 15th century, something that would see the successful consolidation of the Kingdom of Spain as the Islamic Moors had been permanently expelled from the Iberian Peninsula, while Jews and heretics and other individuals that were undesirable to the Spanish crown were treated with merciless brutality. Discoveries in the New World would simultaneously then enable Spain to set up building a worldwide Christian empire on several continents, things that would bring in massive amounts of wealth to the throne. And into all of this story enters maximilian the first hre emperor which is i guess the holy roman empire emperor HREE, i guess Anyway, Europe was kind of a massive mess at this time, and Maximilian I was specifically being supported in his struggle against France by both England and also Spain. And in the case of his alliance with Spain, this was something that was supposed to be consolidated through the act of marriage, something that would become a hallmark of the trait of the Habsburgs. And although Maximilian, who at that point was a fairly elderly widower, wanted to actually marry a Spanish princess for himself, that didn't end up happening. Spain wanted to have a younger generation marry in order to try and cement the alliance, and simultaneously, the way that this diplomatic situation was going to work was something that was supposed to preserve both of the lines, rather than consolidate them into one. And so it was then, in the year 1496, that they would have a double wedding. The children of Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain, which at the time it wasn't actually Spain, it was Castile and Aragon, as well as the child of her brother, the Prince of Asturias, would go and marry Maximilian's grandchildren. One boy, one girl. By one son of each line and one daughter of each line marrying the other, what this would in turn do do is cement the alliances together, but simultaneously you would also have the added bonus of not actually having to pay a dowry, which was something that back in the day you had to do. Now one may immediately think that at the time that this is happening, that this is the Habsburgs first step in their master plan to try to take over Europe through the power of blood genetics and inbreeding. But no, that's actually not the case. As it turns out, what would happen at a lot of these points in history was really stupid luck. Like what the Austrians were doing at this time was specifically trying to strengthen their alliance in order to be able to go and fight France. The big thing. that this alliance was supposed to be able to secure was safety and security for invasions and plans of divvying up Italy, which at the time was definitely not united. It was divided up into varying different territories that Spain, France, and Austria were all competing over. However, the double wedding that we're talking about here was immediately followed by a sequence of strokes of good fortune, things that severely favored the Habsburgs. Because not only did Margaret's new husband, Don John, also die, but then so did all the other Spanish royal heirs. And what this meant was that in the end, this put Joanna and her husband Philip I in line for the throne. So it was then in the year 1500 that they would consolidate their claim to the succession by producing a son, the future emperor Charles V, so that when Philip would become king of Castile in 1504, Spain and all of its possessions would fall into the Habsburg's hands. However, that all being said, it was a good thing that they actually had a son together because only a few years later Philip himself would die and Joanna his wife well um there's a reason why she would go down in history as Joanna the mad just a little bit of a tidbit on her people say that she went mad specifically after her husband Philip died but really even earlier she was already showing signs of mental instability As an example of this, in 1504, her mother ended up being stricken with fever, and as was seen during other times in her life, she would not eat, she would not sleep, she wouldn't do anything while her mother was sick. And after visiting her mother, she wanted to go and join her husband, who was in Flanders, but there was a little bit of a problem. Europe kind of looked like this, and from Spain, she would have to go all the way up here to Flanders, and everything in between they were currently at war with. And so when she was prevented from leaving to go to Flanders, because she just couldn't seem to comprehend why that was a big deal that she couldn't go, she then promptly flew into a rage. Of course, that all being said, that is nothing in comparison to what we would see later when her husband Philip would actually die, because purportedly, what would happen is that she stayed with the body for quite literally weeks, hugging it, kissing it, etc. Um, is that there's that there's a lot of stuff that goes into that there, and she was never really the same after he died. And so anyway, in 1506, her son, Charles V, is the guy who gets named as Philip's successor, and his grandfather, Maximilian, would specifically take measures in order to make sure that he was the individual who would one day ascend the throne. And from this, so it was then in 1516, only ten short years later, that as a result of a series of accidents and luck and a other series of mishaps, that Charles V would easily inherit the largest empire in Europe, becoming Holy Roman emperors, the ruler of Spain, of Naples, of Sicily, and all of the Spanish colonies, bringing in a stupid amount of manpower, resources, wealth, and everything else that you can possibly imagine to the Habsburgs. It was a massive stroke of luck many times over. And from this, begins the Habsburgs. And it's at this point in our story that we're going to be bringing up the Habsburg family tree, something that I'm sure that for anyone who has probably seen anything on Charles II has probably seen this tree before. And so what we're going to be doing is a bit of a dive and explanation into each and every single part of this tree that is going to be showing the relations of all the descendants past Philip the Fair and exactly how this massive mess was created. And so, okay, moving down from Philip and Joanna of Castile, there are three children in this story that are going to be relevant to Charles II. You have Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor... Ferdinand I, who would also be Holy Roman Emperor, and Isabella of Burgundy. The first one that we're going to talk about here is Charles V, which on that note, please hear me out on this. I know this is going to be confusing for a number of people because I'm saying Charles II, Charles V. There's a lot of the first, the second, third, etc. in terms of these names, and you have to understand that these royals had different names depending upon where it was that they were actually ruling, because even though this was Charles V of the Holy Roman Empire, he was technically speaking Charles I of Spain That's why Charles II is actually the guy who would be Charles II instead of like Charles VI or anything else like that. The whole thing truly is a massive mess. Anyway, back to the story. So when our first guy here, Charles, would go and marry at the age of 26, the weird thing was is this was extremely late by the standards of the day. And I don't mean that in terms of general marriage relations. I mean marriage in terms of what would typically happen with royalty because you would usually want to marry younger in order to be able to secure alliances. As an example, his parents, as we had spoken about earlier, they had actually been 18 and 16 at the time they were married. His sisters would all marry under the age of 20, and his advisors and subjects would continuously press him to try and marry earlier, but this ultimately wouldn't end up happening. He had been betrothed to various different princesses in the years before his birth, but... Ultimately, he wouldn't marry any of them. Instead, he would make the final decision to marry his cousin, Isabella of Portugal. Which yes, you heard me right on that when I say this, his cousin Isabella of Portugal, because this is something that when a lot of people are looking at this tree in the first place, they don't even realize that the first marriage outside of this, even though it doesn't show the relations that go back further, that Isabella was actually his cousin, which means that the mark of incest that we would start to try to calculate actually goes back further than what most people online even realize. And we're not talking about a second or third cousin in this case. Isabella of Portugal was specifically the eldest daughter of King Manuel I of Portugal and his wife Maria. And Maria was the sister of Charles' mother, Juana. So in other words, his, his first cousin. Like, that, that's, that's a direct lineage right there. <sighs> but the whole thing was still really good for Charles V, because when he would marry her in 1526, she would bring with her an extremely valuable dowry. But it wasn't only wealth that she brought to the table. No, remember the size of the lands that Charles V was actually ruling. Because of that, he spent a lot of his time specifically on the road, traveling around to different points of his empire in order to be able to, well, manage it. And during those periods of time when he was away, she specifically would stay behind in Spain and she would administer it as a regent. She was smart, she was effective, she was an overall good regent during this time. Even though she would complain to Charles about him being absent for so long simultaneously, the relationship seemed to have actually gone pretty well. To the point that she would have seven children with Charles, but among those children, only three of them would actually survive past being infants these being philip maria and another child called juana the unfortunate reality of the situation is that when you lose over half of your children this is something that is going to severely affect you mentally as well as physically and ultimately in 1538 when her six-month-old son would die this is something that would break her and she in turn would end up passing away charles v would never actually remarry and from this it is said that he carried a portrait of his late wife with him wherever it is that he went Yeah, we may have been starting off this story with a cousin marriage, but simultaneously among everything that we have talked about here so far, this is probably one of the saddest and best parts of this. Moving on to the brother Ferdinand I. Ferdinand I is actually a very important figure to the Habsburg legacy because it is specifically his marriage to Anna, who was the heiress to the Jagiolo dynasty of Poland, that would be the reason that the Habsburgs would go on to inherit things like Bohemia as well as Hungary. But of course, the negotiations for that marriage in the first place were something that were in and of themselves very amusing and weird because, uh, oh my god, like let, let me just go ahead and explain this thing. So get this right. As early as the year 1504, Ferdinand's grandfather, Maximilian I, and Anna's father, Ladislaus V, they had begun negotiations on a kind of reciprocal contract for inheritance something that would only apply if one of the dynasties ended up going extinct. The basics of this agreement was that it was supposed to be affirmed by the double wedding that would be celebrated in Vienna in 1515. The idea was that Ladislaus' son, who was the nine-year-old Louis, would go on to marry Maximilian's granddaughter, Maria, who was one year older than her husband. In the case of Ladislaus' daughter, Anna, Maximilian actually found himself in the very awkward position of being unable to provide a bridegroom since, weirdly enough, he had no power of disposition over his two grandsons, Charles and Ferdinand. And thus it was that Maximilian was actually the guy who had to stand before the altar besides Anna as a proxy for one of his two grandsons. Really, none of that had actually been decided yet. No one knew exactly what was going to happen. And since this was so weird, a compromise agreement was made wherein if one year went by with no binding nuptial agreement and a prince could not then be provided, then Maximilian himself, who remember by this point, had already been widowed twice and was 56 years old, was the individual who would go and take the 12-year-old princess as his wife. Ah, dynastic politics, my friends. Dynastic politics. However, this all ended up being unnecessary, thank God, because what ended up happening is that Ferdinand, at the age of 13, would end up getting announced as Anna's husband. And then remember how this whole thing was supposed to be about safety and stability with it being a double marriage? Well, the issue then became that Anna's brother, Louis, would end up dying in the disastrous Battle of Mohacs, Which I'm probably butchering the pronunciation of, but this would happen in the year 1526. Because this meant that Anna was now the sole heiress to the crowns of Bohemia and Hungary, which, by proxy of marriage, meant that the Habsburgs now had control of Bohemia as well as Hungary. Though, of course, at the time, they didn't exactly have full control of Hungary because the whole thing with Hungary was being invaded and occupied by the Ottomans, but that's besides the point. They had a claim to it, at least now. And the thing is, the marriage between Anna and Ferdinand actually ended up being a very good one. Very harmonious, as the records say. This is a marriage that would result in the birth of 15 children, which, oh my god, that is a lot. Of which two would actually not survive infancy. So 13 out of 15. Pretty good record. Anna would unfortunately end up dying from complications during the birth of her last child, Joanna, in 1547, and after that, Ferdinand would refuse to marry. They just, they really actually seemed to love each other. And that brings us to the last relevant child among the three, Isabella of Burgundy. Now, I'm gonna move rather quickly through this one, but when Isabella was 14, she would end up being married off to King Christian II of Denmark, thus becoming Queen of Denmark herself. But this wasn't exactly a happy marriage in the beginning, it seems, as Christian actually had a mistress who he cared significantly more so for than his wife and ultimately this meant that she was shunned from court for the longest time trying to compete for political power and she couldn't actually do anything until that mistress died but either way she and christian would go on to have three sons two of which would ultimately die in infancy as well as two daughters Things still don't really go well for her, as in 1523, her husband ends up getting overthrown as king of Denmark. And she is then given a choice of either going into exile with her husband or staying and serving the new king. She would ultimately end up choosing her husband and they would flee together into Europe, seeking the protection of extended family and other powers that could potentially help them get back their throne. And it is there that she would ultimately die rather quickly, but it is not actually her son that is up next, but instead her daughter as we move on down to the next generation. That being for Christina of Denmark. The woman that we are talking about now is the Princess Christina Oldenburg, who was born as Princess of Denmark and Norway in either 1521 or 1522, we're not exactly sure which, but born right before her father, the King of Denmark and Norway, Sweden, was ultimately overthrown. She would never actually return to the home country that she was born in in the first place, but she simultaneously would get married twice. The first guy that she was married to in 1533 was Francisco II Sforza, Duke of Milan, and she was married to him by proxy. She would ultimately go to actually live with him in the year 1534, and the interesting thing about this was that as part of the marriage contract, if they did not have any children together, if Francesco died without any heirs, then this meant from the contract that Milan would actually get inherited by the Habsburgs. This would ultimately end up actually happening as Francesco would die only the next year in 1535, which meant that Austria, once again, by sheer virtue of dumb luck or perhaps some other dark machinations that we can't necessarily say did happen, they would ultimately end up inheriting the Duchy of Milan as well. After that, the guy that she would go on to marry would be Francis, Duke of Bar in 1541, and theirs is the relationship that would actually be relevant to what it is that we would be talking about here with Charles II, as they would actually end up having children together. She would have a son in February of 1543, and then in addition to that she would end up having two daughters, but unfortunately, very shortly after, in June of 1545, literally only within four years of getting married again, she would once again be a widow as her husband would die. After that, she just She she didn't get married again. And among the children that Christina would have, it is not actually her son that would end up being relevant to the story. It is, in fact, her daughter, Renata, but we're not exactly going to get into her yet because the issue with that is that means
0: we're going to be skipping. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Some of us love history.
1: Down by a whole other generation. So moving back into the list, remember how Ferdinand and his wife had 15 children? Well, three of those, Maximilian II, Charles II, and Anne of Habsburg, are ones that are going to be relevant to the story. And the reason that I'm going back into the middle child of this here with Ferdinand is because it is Anne, one of his children, that is going to be relevant to the one that we just spoke about here with Renata. See, young Anna had actually been engaged multiple times as a child. First was to Prince Theodora of Bavaria, this being the guy who is the eldest son of Duke William IV of Bavaria, and then after the that to Charles de Orleans. However, the problem with these engagements was that none of them actually managed to survive to become married in the first place. They all died young. The guy that she would finally end up marrying at the age of 17 in July of 1546 was this guy, Prince Albert V of Bavaria. This was the individual that was the younger brother of the guy who had been her fiancé in the first place. But you know, that's what happens with royal dynasties. When one dies, you just merely replace it with another. And from their marriage, they would end up having two children that would be relevant, Maria Anna of Bavaria and William V, Duke of Bavaria and it is that guy William V of Bavaria that would go on to marry Renata the individual that we just talked about here before which from everything that we've described and shown with the family tree you can see that they are amazingly enough only the very distant relation relatively speaking of being second cousins now you can probably see from this point why it is that I skipped around in order to be able to talk about that because we're, we're going to start consolidating here pretty soon the other child that we're talking about here Maria Anna of Austria was not going to be as lucky with a uh, marrying a distant relation as she would was actually going to end up marrying her uncle, Charles II of Austria. As in, yes, direct blood relation of uncle and niece, Charles II, who was the direct son of Ferdinand I and Anna of Bohemia. This is the guy that she would marry and make babies with. Full blood relation, just not even a cousin, just uncle and niece. Yeah. Yeah, and there's going to be more of that. Yeah, the background of this whole situation is that Charles's very powerful Spanish relatives were very keen on finding him a strong and suitable wife. And to that end, they had actually sent him to England in 1559 in order to try and marry Elizabeth I of England. Yes, that Elizabeth. But unfortunately, upon getting there, he very quickly realized that uh, she was not interested in marriage and is actually still remembered in history as the Virgin Queen. Not to mention, besides the issue of, hey, I don't want to marry, there was the whole religious schism that was starting to develop in Europe at this time, and England wasn't exactly very keen on having a potential Catholic king come into play here. So eventually, after all this would go down, yeah, he would go on to marry his niece, and weirdly enough from this, they actually seemed to be a good match together. Having been brought up very devout and a very firmly Catholic court, Maria actually became a dominant figure within the counter-revolution, something that was very important for Austria over the coming decades. And so celebrating their marriage in 1571, the couple would actually end up going on to produce 15 children together, of which six of these were sons, and only two of those would actually die in infancy. Which then brings us to the last relevant son of this generation for Ferdinand I, Maximilian II. Now this guy is definitely an interesting character, because born in Vienna on the 31st of July 1527, Maximilian was the second child, and the eldest son of Archduke Ferdinand. At court from a very young age, the Archduke actually received an education that seemed to focus more on humanist ideals, which is very surprising considering that this is at a time where religious schisms were beginning to tear Europe apart, effectively. The Lutheran Reformation had taken a hold across the varying different Habsburg lands, and many different aspects of the nobility and rulership were not happy about this, those that had chosen to still remain as Catholic. And as a ruler, Ferdinand's position towards the Reformation in Central Europe had been one of being ready to compromise. His family, though, was having none of it. Like, his family were very keen on controlling him and making sure that he did exactly what they needed in order to strengthen their alliance. And one of the things that they did was that Charles V, his uncle, his Imperial Majesty, the Holy Roman Emperor, made sure that what he did was go and marry his daughter, his first cousin... And all of this was done in order to potentially stop a rift from growing between the Spanish line of the Habsburgs and the Austrian line of the Habsburgs, which from that could potentially cause the entirety of Europe to split asunder. The ultimate idea of this was that there was supposed to be a alternating succession for the imperial throne. You'd have a candidate from the Spanish line take over the Holy Roman Empire, and then after that candidate would die, this would then be followed by an Austrian candidate and vice versa. The idea of this was that by alternating the candidates side by side, this meant that the power dynamic would stay relatively stable within the family so that they wouldn't constantly be competing against one another even within their own family in order to try and outdo and take over other territory. But Maximilian hated this and he hated how much his uncle manipulated him. And part of the key form of that manipulation was specifically his wife, his first cousin, Maria. And the thing about this woman, Maria, was that she specifically was supposed to be a representative of the interests of her brother, Philip II, and from that, an extension of the Spanish court. So much so that when she was in the court of Maximilian, she was so incredibly confident, so self-assured, and her retinue, her, her retainers, were so incredibly arrogant at court that they pissed off everyone in Austria. It's just, it wasn't a very harmonious relationship. And ultimately, in the end, only a few years after her husband would die in 1581, she would end up returning back to her home country where she would go off and die. Still though, despite what seems to be more of a dysfunctional relationship, the couple still ended up going on to create 16 children, and of that number, around 9 of them would end up surviving from infancy. The bad thing about this though is that despite the impressive tally of managing to have 6 sons reach adulthood, the line, amazingly enough, was actually set to die out in the very next generation due to the fact that there was no legitimate male offspring. Rudolf II and Ernst would go on and remain unmarried, while as men of the church, Maximilian III and Wenzel were subject to the rule of chastity. They couldn't actually have children. And the marriages of Matthias, as well as Albrecht, would also remain childless. And with no one really left to secure things, this then meant that their daughter, Anne of Austria, would go on to marry her uncle, Philip II of Spain, in what was yet another uncle-niece relationship. And this guy, her uncle, oh man, he had already been widowed by this point three times. He had survived three different women before. He was 22 years older than his new child bride. Over the course of 10 years of marriage then, Anna would go on to give birth to four children, all but one of which would end up dying in infancy. That one being the long-awaited heir to the throne, Philip III. Anna thus managed to preserve the Spanish line from extinction, but trust me, at this point, we're you're starting to see some of the stuff in the face. We're, we're getting pretty close there. And yeah, at this point in time, I'm going to go ahead and say that we're going to start moving a little bit more rapidly because we are starting to consolidate things within this tree as it becomes less like a tree and more like a ladder that just goes straight across. Moving on, next generation. So Philip III was always kind of a sickly child. He never exactly was doing so hot, or I guess he kind of was hot in the sense when he was always suffering from fevers from severe digestion issues and it was oftentimes feared that he wouldn't end up actually surviving his childhood. Now physically speaking, he did resemble his father, Philip II, and also simultaneously he definitely reflected his nature. He was very reserved, he was very shy, He was he was not exactly an individual that you could describe as a strong leader. This is something that applies to both the father and the son, but unfortunately the son was significantly worse, as he was significantly less diligent and showed even less talents than his father did. So much so that there is a line, there is a a quote from his father, Philip II, when describing him that says, God may have granted me many dominions, but he did not grant me a suitable successor. Ouch, daddy. But the important thing was that Philip III still also needed a successor himself, and so to that end, he was married to the Archduchess Margaret, who herself was a daughter of Charles II of Austria and the niece relationship that we spoke about earlier. So yes, once again, this was the very distant relation of, you know, them being second cousins, which is not all that bad considering everything that we've been talking about here, but then simultaneously you have to remember that both of these progenies were that of uncle-niece relationships, and that is gross. The funny thing about this marriage is that originally she wasn't actually supposed to be the one that was marrying him. It was supposed to be her elder sister, but that girl had ended up dying in an early age, and much like all these things that we've been talking about with dynastic politics, you gotta make do with what you have. But even after this happens, the job still wasn't supposed to actually pass to her because she had another elder sister by the name of Gregoria Maximiliana, and it was her job then to marry this prince. But then, unfortunately for her, she also died before negotiations could be concluded. The... the, that the heirs at this point are kind of dropping like flies as I think the blood is starting to settle in. And so eventually the job then finally falls to Margaret. Now, the funny thing about all this is, is that, yes, I have been making fun of it the entire time. But simultaneously, it seems from the history that their relationship was actually a very harmonious one. Philip III may have been a very weak-willed individual, but that was perfect for Margaret because she was a person that was very keen on politics. So she oftentimes would interfere in the state while he would kind of take a back burner to things. And, even though the couple was very closely related, simultaneously it still did result in a successful brood of children, as they would manage to have five out of eight of their children survive. But then, of course, crossing back over to the other side of this increasingly more narrow family tree was Margaret's brother Ferdinand, and this guy, Ferdinand II, was the individual who would also end up being Holy Roman Emperor. You, uh... You, you can definitely see that there's been some, uh, some degeneration here by this time. Anyway, Ferdinand would then go on to marry his first cousin, the individual that we already talked about before, the daughter of William V, the Duke of Bavaria and Renata of Lorraine, Maria Anna of Bavaria, which is not to be confused with any of the other Maria Annas of Bavaria that we've talked about, because in this, the, the, in, in the Habsburgs, there's, there's a lot of Maria Annas. There's, there's like a lot of them. And the whole idea behind their marriage was that it was specifically supposed to strengthen the ties between the Wittlesburgs. the family here that the Habsburgs had been marrying into in one of the prominent dynasties of Bavaria, and, well, the rest of their holdings, combining the two arguably largest Catholic houses in Central Europe at this time. But if this whole thing was supposed to tie the families together, the unfortunate reality is that death was becoming significantly more common at this time. During the 16 years of marriage, Mariana would give birth to seven children. The first two of these children, a daughter and a son, would die at birth, and a further son, named Johann Karl, would die at the age of 14. The first child to actually survive into adulthood was the fourth, a son, who would go on to succeed his father as Emperor Ferdinand III. And okay, here we are, moving into the home stretch. It's getting more consolidated, you can see right here. Two of the children that Philip III and Margaret would have would be Philip IV, that you can see behind me here. And again, you can really start to see where the degeneration in physical features was really coming into play and becoming more and more prominent. And the other one was another, Maria Anna, except this time of Spain, not of Bavaria. And between those two siblings, Maria Anna, the sister, would go on to marry Ferdinand III, the guy that you can see right here. He is the Holy Roman Emperor that would be her first cousin, which was the progeny of other incestuous relationships. And the thing is, originally, she was supposed to have married Ferdinand's older brother, Johann Karl, but after he died at the age of 14, then, much like the other ones that we've talked about, you know, just the next one had to step up in order to do the job. But, you know, considering everything that was going on for them, apparently the couple's life was actually fairly decent. They actually had a decent amount of affection for each other, and this resulted in six children being born, one of which was a child who was also named Maria Anna, and this, unfortunately, would be the child that would then have to marry her uncle. Philip IV. which my god you just you, you really start to feel bad for him at the time and the story of Philip IV is definitely an interesting one because at the age of 11 he had been betrothed to the 10-year-old Isabel of Bourbon this being the person that was the daughter of King Henry IV. that marriage would go on to produce a son by the name of Balthazar Charles which I have to say just off the bat is that that is a name and uh, unfortunately, I guess he couldn't live up to his grand name because he would die only at the age of 16. In addition to that son, Phil IV would also have six daughters with that wife, of which only one would actually manage to survive into adulthood. They just uh, they, they just really have good odds. And if all of that wasn't bad enough, Philip's first wife, Isabel, would die in 1644. So not only are basically all of his children dead, but simultaneously his wife is, and the urgent need for a male successor means that he needs to get married immediately in order to try and establish, or not even establish, to save. His line. So this guy, who is a 54-year-old widower, would go and enter into marriage with his 15-year-old niece, who, mind you, originally wasn't even supposed to be married to him. That niece was supposed to marry his son, Balthazar Charles, but then Balthazar would go on and die. There's just, there, there, there's so much to unpack there. Ah. Still, though, despite the age difference, they would manage to have children. Five of them, in fact. Born in 1651, Margarita Teresa was intended from childhood to be the wife of Emperor Leopold I, and she was then followed by a series of children who would ultimately end up dying in childhood. Born in 1655, you would have Maria Ambrosia, who would suffer from epilepsy and would die after only 15 days. In 1657, you had Philip Prosper, who was born again a very sickly child who would die only a few years later in 1661 you had Thomas Carl who was born in 1658 who would die after only four months and then in 1661 finally Charles II was would be born. The future of the Spanish Empire, one of the largest empires in all of history was now dangling by a single thread that honestly just was about to kick over the bucket at any given point. I mean, my friends, you have to understand just how disastrous of a situation, how precarious of a situation the Habsburgs were in at this point. It was such a bad situation that there were a lot of rumors and accusations going around when Charles was first born that he wasn't even a male, that he was actually a daughter that the crown was instead protecting was actually a male, so that they could say that the line had not gone extinct. Because, you know, the whole patrilineal thing, where it's actually males that are supposed to pass down the family name. The boy himself was a very sorry spectacle, and his feeble health would cause the family to fear for his life. Charles was afflicted with just terrible, bizarre ugliness. In him, you had the classic Habsburg jaw and elongated skull, and this, because of years upon years of inbreeding, was exaggerated to an almost cartoonish degree. In the superstitious belief of the time, the condition that he was in with his physical deformities made people believe that he had been cursed by witches, thus giving the name Charles the Hexed. The attempts that some physicians would try to make in order to cure him were oftentimes accompanied by occult practices, exorcisms, different things that could be performed by priests to try and save his soul. But naturally, because we're talking about physical deformities from inbreeding, none of these actually worked. And in view of his feebleness, because he suffered from a congenital heart defect, the prince was treated with extreme care as a child. He did not learn how to read or write until a comparatively late age, and was excluded from any kind of higher learning, with the result being that as an adult, he was kept away from the affairs of government because he had no knowledge of how anything worked whatsoever. And his behavior wouldn't necessarily help the case, because people would say that he acted like an imbecile or like an overly large child. Because one of his favorite activities, what he really liked to do, was to... To just count things much in the same way as you'd have, you know, like a kindergartner or a preschooler who's going around and saying, oh, I know how many trees there are. One, two, three. He did that same thing as a full-grown adult. And with how physically deformed he was, with how incapable he was of doing anything, his inability to produce children would then result in the Spanish War of Succession. And speaking of counting, it is time that we go and calculate just how inbred Charles II was, because that is the question that we asked at the very beginning of this episode. Thankfully, a scientific study was actually done in the past couple decades that answers this precise question. So, coming directly from an article about the subject, Gonzalo Alvarez and his colleagues at the University of Santiago de Compostela in Spain calculated what is being called the inbreeding coefficient for each individual across 16 generations of Habsburgs, this using genealogical information for Charles II and 3,000 of his relatives and ancestors. The inbreeding coefficient then indicates the likelihood that an individual would receive two at a given position on a chromosome because of the relatedness of their parents, hence drastically increasing the likelihood that some kind of defect or something is going to appear because it is going to be reinforced as time goes on. What Alvarez's team found is that over Over time, the inbreeding coefficient among the generations of Habsburgs drastically went up, starting from the measly number of 0.025 for Philip I, all the way to down to 254 for Charles II. A lot of people right off the bat are probably not going to understand just how significant that is, so let me go ahead and break it down for you here. If you had two full blooded siblings, a brother and a sister, go and marry one another and have children together, those children would have an inbreeding coefficient of 0.25, which means that despite the fact that there was no brother sister relationships over the course of this marriage, Charles II still had a higher inbreeding coefficient than what would happen if two full blooded siblings had kids together. And so it seems that the high degree of this relatedness over time over multiple generations is likely one of the biggest factors that would lead to the eventual extinction of this line. Like as an example, one of the things that they used in order to back this up is by looking at child mortality rates at the time back in this time period. Among the Habsburgs, only 60% of children managed to reach it to the age of one. And then going further, only 50% of their children managed to reach it to the age of 10. Those numbers are already bad and a number of people are probably gonna say, oh, but hey, wasn't infant mortality rates like super high back in the day? Yeah, it was. But the thing is they still had an 80% survival rate when it came to children for like just peasants and villagers. So the royal family, the people who had access to all these funds, all this money, all this everything, they had a lower success rating of their children than did a peasant with access to no resources whatsoever. I mean the reality of the situation is that Charles' disorders and illnesses are just evidence of severe inbreeding within the line. According to all the writings of the day as we talked about, he was short, he was was weak, he suffered from intestinal problems, he was incapable of reading or writing until he was significantly older, he wasn't allowed to walk until he was much older, and received no kind of higher education as nothing seemed to actually work or stick with him. Simultaneously, he constantly suffered from sporadic hematuria, which means there was blood present in his urine when he peed. Not only that, but the man was simultaneously impotent. He couldn't actually seem to have children, or even get it up in the first place, which is something that was complained about severely by his wife. From the that the team was able to gather about this as well as genetic information and understanding they came to the conclusion that the most likely thing that he suffered from is a combined pituitary hormone deficiency and distal renal tubular acidosis which is a condition that causes acid to build up in the body because the kidneys are not actually properly channeling it into the urine to be able to you know leave the body and these were problems that were going to plague him until his death at the measly age of 39 which genuinely it's impressive that he even managed to last that long in the first place and that's just it. He would die without any children, which in turn would mean the end of the Spanish Habsburg line. Ultimately, the House of Bourbon of France would assume the Spanish crown and everything would devolve into chaos and war. Bringing us to the conclusion of how inbred was Charles II? Well, more than if brothers and sisters had babies. Everyone, this has been Stuck Uy with the History of Everything podcast YouTube channel. Thank you very much for watching. Remember to like, comment, and subscribe. I know this episode may sound a little bit odd because I was actually supposed to, based off the poll, to have created the episode on Queen Victoria and her uh, attempted assassinations. And I am making that, but this specific sponsor deal, it just, it came in. And I was like, no, guys, guys, I have the perfect one to do this on. We have to use this for my heritage. It's perfect. I have to. And they loved the idea. So, you know, here we are. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Remember to like, comment, subscribe. Check out my links down in the description, and I will see you all next time. More episodes are coming soon.
0: All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History, wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History, wherever you get your podcasts.